0: I'll be you, Welcome. You're listening to Living Faith Podcast. Starry sky, see your hand in time, mine to lead me through the night. Participated in a book club with a group of, I don't know, 12 or 15 friends. We met every month. And after we would discuss the book of that month, one member was responsible to recommend the book that we would all read the following month. And that process created some variety, and it encouraged reading books that we might not read of our own choosing. I remember the month where one member, a marathon runner, Recommended a book called Running for My Life on the Extreme Road with adventure runner Ray Zahab. The author is an ultra-marathoner. I have to confess, I'm not a runner. I have tried running a couple of times. I hate it. I'm not going to be a runner. It's not something that I've enjoyed. I I can't go that direction. I had no idea what an ultra marathon was until I read this book. And I did read the book, and I got to tell you, the man's exploits are amazing. Reading the book, he's a Canadian adventurer. He's an ultra-distant runner. Ray has run a course of 8,000 700 miles across the world's deserts and completed multiple unsupported expeditions in some of the coldest places on the planet. As an example, in November of 2006, Ray and two of his friends set out on a run across the Sahara Desert by foot for 111 days. They ran 4,663 miles in total, leaving the coast of Senegal, and they completed their journey stepping into the Red Sea. They ran on average 43 miles a day without a day of rest for 111 days. I get tired walking to my car. You know what I'm saying? 111 days, over 43 miles averaging a day. Endurance. In the winter of 2010, Ray and another friend ran the length of a frozen lake in Siberia. 404 miles in 13 days, totally unsupported. Persistence. In February of 2011, Ray ran the length of what's called the driest desert on earth, the Atacama Desert in northern Chile. He did it solo, 745 miles, temperatures above 120 degrees Fahrenheit. He ran it in 20 days with emergency supplies on his back commitment, endurance. He ran across Solo, across Mongolia and the Gobi Desert, 1,243 miles. I could go on. It doesn't stop. He still runs today. You can find his webpage. The guy is amazing. He keeps running. Temperature extremes doesn't stop him. Severe terrain doesn't stop him. He persistently pursues his goal. He he starts out, he's going to make it. This guy isn't just an endurance athlete, he's an ultra endurance athlete. A few weeks ago now, we started the current sermon series from the book of Jonah, and that beginning message, we read the first couple of verses from the book of Jonah. And today in this final message, I'm going to do the same thing. Jonah chapter one, verse number one. These four short chapters of this book begin with these words. The Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up, Go to the great city of Nineveh, announce my judgment against it, because I have seen how wicked its people are. Our very first introduction to Jonah, to this story, is God reaching to Jonah. God initiated the contact. God started the story. It all starts with the Lord. And I have to tell you, as you might suspect, there is something that interests me about this story. Something about God interests me in particular and his interaction with Jonah. Here's the thing. Scripture everywhere. If you look throughout the Bible, there are direct uh, quotes or direct instructions and then implications throughout that God knows everything. There's one word we use for that. God is omniscient. He knows everything. It's throughout the scripture. There's straightforward confirmation in the Psalms, in the prophets, in what's called the wisdom literature, in the New Testament. It's universally assumed that God is aware of humanity's doings. He hears and responds to prayer because of that, and in that fact, and he reveals the future because God knows everything. Just a a few samplings as example. The Bible, Solomon said, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Disciples were trying to recruit a replacement for themselves, and the Bible says they prayed, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show us, open our eyes to who we should choose. And when Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray, he said, your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. King David, I'll have this scripture on the screen. He observed this in Psalm 139. Oh Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I am going to say even before I say it, Lord. In fact, through the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord himself declared this in Jeremiah 17. But I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. Throughout the Bible, there are many other references. God is acknowledged as knowing everything. It's a a fundamental characteristic of God. Here's the thing. God is never surprised. He's never fooled. He's never bewildered. He's never astonished. The Almighty God has never and will never use the phrase, Whoa, I I didn't see that coming. God will never, has never said that. So here's the thing. If you have that kind of knowledge, why in the world, Do you choose a guy like Jonah to take your message to Nineveh? Because the Lord knew when he tapped Jonah on the shoulder hey, pal, I got a mission for you. He knew that Jonah was a risk. He knew. In the Proverbs, it was Solomon who said this, Trusting a fool to convey a message is like cutting off one's feet or drinking poison. Now, God gave Solomon his wisdom. You'd think God knew the challenges of asking someone to do a job who might not get it done. Why? Why does God knowingly give an assignment to a guy that could be undependable. What do we learn about God who knowing this man's weakness still invites that man to an important assignment? What kind of God knowingly engages a faulty man? But that's exactly what happened. The story opens with the Lord gave a message to Jonah. Of course, if you read the book, you look, you check it out, you're familiar at all with the story, if none of this makes sense to you, you're welcome to go online and listen to the fat last five weeks' messages and catch up. I'll try to pick everybody off where, up where we left off. Immediately after the Lord's call, Jonah gets up and goes in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. The Bible tells us he bought a ticket, he boards a ship, and he's hoping to escape from the Lord. So God taps him on the shoulder, gives him a message, knowing he's a risk, and indeed Jonah proves I'm a risk, goes the other direction, gets a boat and heads off. Now, you would think God would say, well, I tried. Let him run. You think God would say, you know what, you're not interested, pal, no problem. I have other prophets. I'll send a text to Hosea or Amos. One of those guys is going to be excited to pick up the challenge. But that's not what God did. Instead, the Bible says this in chapter 1 and verse 4 of Jonah, the Lord hurled a powerful wind over the sea causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. You know, i got to throw this in in our understanding of who we are and who God is and how He interacts with us. Here's something we know from this story and other places in Scripture. When we disobey God storms follow. When we disobey God, storms follow. Now, the Bible does not say that every difficulty is a result of sin, but it does teach that every sin brings difficulty. Jonah's rebellion brought a powerful wind and a violent storm, and yet, Jonah denied God. Rather than relent, he tells the sailors, toss me overboard, he welcomes death at sea. There's such defiance in this man Jonah. Surely, now they've tossed him overboard, he's into stormy waters, he persistently is running from God. Surely, Jonah will ignore, be ignored by God now. But God doesn't ignore him. Instead, the Bible says this in 1 and 17. Now the Lord had arranged a great fish to swallow Jonah. You know, rather than let that rebel drown, he is in a situation he has caused for himself. Can I get a witness? Just let him sink. The guy is dead weight. You keep working on him, he keeps running away. The human response would be, let the bum go. But instead, the Lord arranges for some totally weird scuba gear. And the Lord kept Jonah alive. In fact, for three days in the deep. Three days. 72 hours. That's how long it takes before Jonah decides, you know, maybe I should pray about this. Right? Three days in total darkness. Three days in the darkest most bizarre, most uncertain of circumstances, three days before he decides to pray. He goes that long without uttering a word of prayer. People, I mean, you read that, you think, people. Aren't we something else? Our ability to ignore God is almost dumbfounding. The Bible says, after three days. Jonah confessed his error. And I want you to notice this key portion of Jonah's prayer in Jonah two and verse number nine of all the things Jonah says. Notice right here. He says, I will offer sacrifices to you with songs of praise. I will fulfill all my vows for my salvation comes from the Lord alone. My salvation comes from the Lord alone. You've got to wonder if it took three days to pray because Jonah is trying to orchestrate his own escape. If Jonah figures out, I got myself into this problem, I can get myself out. If there's something going on where he's wrestling with his own ingenuity and his own ability to measure and calculate and figure and persuade, maybe for three days it takes him to come to this place to say, my salvation comes from the Lord alone. And when he finally prayed, he finally relented and said that to God, the Lord hits the eject button and Jonah is deposited onto a nearby beach. Now, Jonah, he, he can't even recover from his sea legs yet. Three days in total darkness in the weirdest of circumstances. He can barely stand on the shore. And Jonah chapter 3 and verse number 1, the scripture says this. Then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Deliver the message I have given you. As a human, I read this and I think, really? Really, God? You know this guy. You know his Heart, You've witnessed his ridiculous actions, and now you're going to give him a do-over? Really, God? That's what you're going to do? Yes, the all-knowing God did exactly that, and he invites Jonah to be involved a, a second time. This time, Jonah delivers God's message, and the message works. Nineveh is changed, which pleased God, but not Jonah. In Jonah chapter 4, in verse number 1, the scripture records the change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. It's just a day or so ago, he's three days in total underwater darkness, his eyes probably have not yet adjusted to sunlight. No doubt Jonah spoke to Nineveh through squinted eyes that still couldn't handle the sunlight. Yet he's got the audacity to get livid with God and start arguing with God. It's amazing to me. He does one thing that God asks him to do, and then he's back to his old ways, denying God. Now here's the thing, his repentance, that prayer that we just read in 2 and 9, it had to be legitimate, it had to be real, it had to be sincere because God responded to it, got him ejected from the funny scuba gear. But Jonah's repentance, his change of heart, evidently was temporary, evidently it was just partial. Why does that happen? I suggest it happens because of the powerful pull of human history and habit. We fall back into the same ways, doing the same things, because of the powerful pull of human history and habit. Old habits are hard to break. New habits are hard to establish. Think about it. How many people find dieting to be easy? Old habits are hard to break. New habits are hard to establish. History is tough to overcome. I read recently that addicts who break free of their addiction may need six or seven stints in rehab before staying clean. Why? Because human histories and habits Can be powerful. Dr. Samuel Chand argues that people do not change until the pain of change is less than the pain of staying the same. Humans prefer easy to difficult. Old habits are easy, and because old habits are easy, they are powerful in our lives. Unless we're willing to do what's difficult and challenging and and different, we are likely as humans to fall back into our old habits, our old ways, and the history that has brought us this far. We learn from Jonah that being changed by God's grace can require a journey that passes through many stages. Even, even after three days in the deep, a, a catastrophic experience in Jonah's life, it, it wasn't sufficient to completely realign his history and his habits and the way he had been rebelling God. Can I suggest today that Jonah is not the only human, that there are other humans in the room. And at times we are like Jonah, we need multiple, many exposures to God's Favor, Many exposures to God's actions in our life, many impacts and many collisions, if you will, with the hand of God before our history and our habits are truly taken over by the love and the grace and the power of God we see our need for him then we're open to his kindness and his favor but that transformation the transformation that embeds uh, the love of God and his undeserved favor deep into our hearts to the the foundation of our identities I I preach today that is not a one time experience but it is a a process where God again and again reaches into lives and again and again, you and I are faced with a choice. Will I let God move in my life? Or will I walk away like Jonah? You and I, if we would follow Christ, we've got to know about the process of grace repeatedly impacting us. But more than that this afternoon, I think we need to know this. We need to know that God knows this process. We need to know that God knows that Jonah is not the only human of his kind. We need to know that God knows that Jonah's walk the planet today. We need to understand that God is well aware that not everyone who would be impacted by Christ immediately surrenders and falls in line and follows. But God knows, God understands that there are some humans who require His repeated visits. There are some people that require God's repeated efforts. And so, when uninformed humans read about Jonah's vehement anger toward God We as humans might think, come on, God, he's rejected you. He's turned away from you. He's treating you pitiful. Look out, fellas, here it comes. Judgment, lightning, fire, brimstone. God is fixing to wipe Jonah from the face of the earth. But we're wrong. Because that's not what God did no sonic booms, no fire from heaven. Instead, God is undeterred by the obstacles and the difficulty that Jonah throws up. God endured, God tried again, this time in Jonah 4.4. 4. Instead of strong wind, God tries to reason with Jonah. The Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry about all this? God takes a different tact. He turns the tables a bit, recognizing these other things haven't got his attention. Let's try something different to get his attention. And he says, really, really, Jonah, really? Do you need to be that angry over all this? And Once again, Jonah is acting ridiculous. He doesn't answer. He walks away. God audibly asks Jonah a question. Jonah walks away. I don't know what that means in your house of rearing to walk away when someone's in a conversation with you, but in my house, my mom would said, Oh, no, you don't walk away when I'm talking to you. Other people understand what I did. I I think and I reason that he's walking away from God. He's turning from Almighty God. Holy, righteous, just, gracious God. Jonah just turns his back and walks away. I can hear my mama's voice in the back of my mind and I think, surely God is going to let him have it right now. Jonah, he's doing the same thing he did at the beginning. The very beginning of the book, the Lord says to Jonah, hey, got something for you to do. Jonah turns and walks away. All of that stuff's happened. Now it happens again. Jonah's like, I see you. Who is this guy? As I read Jonah's action, I recognize that. I think about judgment, but it's not God's response. You know why? Because God knows humanity better than you and I do, we are His creation. While we continue to discover and learn and adapt and recognize social and intellectual and psychological things about humanity, we know nothing like the Creator knows about humanity. And when we think this is how it ought to be done, God knows better and He does different. And He walks away. He he ignores. He turns His back. He walks away on God. You know what God does? He calls a florist and orders Jonah a plant. what the Bible says. Jonah chapter 4 and verse number 6. The Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there. Soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. This eased his discomfort and Jonah was very grateful for the plant I think it's funny that even rebels enjoy it when God does nice things. Look at verse 7. God also arranged for a worm. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. Verse 8, as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a soothing east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. The shade plant, the worm, the scorching east wind, all of those were arranged by God. All of those were God's ongoing involvement in Jonah's life. Can I say to us this afternoon, we need to recognize discomfort isn't always bad. God might be using uncomfortableness to get my attention and to change my attitude. And then God poses another question in verse number 9. God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. You know, I said it earlier, but... It's hard to believe Jonah is a grown individual. You think he's probably more, you know, 12 years old. He's got 12-year-old maturity, 12-year-old emotional development. Is it right for you to be angry because a plant died? Come on, Jonah. Yeah, yeah, I should even die. I'm angry enough over that. Look at verse 10. Then the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly. It died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? You know, the Lord's final words to Jonah are an explanation of his actions. God explains himself to Jonah. God owed Jonah nothing. Yet, God explained himself to Jonah. And then the book ends. When we read through this short book, it's four chapters. In repeated cases, Jonah is persistently wrong. Yet, with great endurance, God pursued Jonah. Jonah's bullheaded, he's arrogant, he's clueless, he lacks self-reflection and evaluation. After many readings of the book, perhaps you, like me, have come away thinking, this Jonah cat is one serious piece of work. But we ought to come away with this understanding. Greater than Jonah's persistent failures and wrong attitudes and pitiful actions, greater than those are the Lord's enduring grace reaching for that man. In the face of Jonah's foolishness, God doesn't quit. I, I, we gotta take away that God doesn't just accept Jonah and leave him alone in his own foolishness. God didn't allow Jonah to remain undisturbed in his foolish attitudes and behaviors. Instead, God continued to patiently reach into his life and to patiently work on him and try to get his attention and bringing back we need to take away from this story that God is both too holy and too loving to either destroy Jonah or to let him remain the way that he is. You see, that is God's relentless ultra-marathoner grace. That is the Lord continuing to pursue humanity. Not just a group of humans, not just a, an organization of humans, but an individual God pursues Long after humanity would give up, God continues. Ultramarathons across barren deserts, is that what it's going to take? God doesn't quit. Days of running across frozen tundra in Siberia. Is that what it will take to bring a man back? God remains persistent in His pursuit of individuals to return to His favor and return into His love. See, God is committed to us. He's committed to restoring our relationship to Himself. Now, you and I, people today, All four episodes of Jonah's story have been posted for centuries. We get to binge read Jonah's story. We don't have to wait a week or a month until the latest episode. But Jonah lived his story. Hour by hour. Day by day. Jonah lived the ups and the downs with God. Jonah lived the hot and the cold with God. Jonah lived in the hour by hour in God interactions. Likewise, you and I, while we are living in our stories with God. It's not as easy to see the overall story as when we look back on Jonah's story. You and I living in the minute by minute and the hour by hour. We don't get this big picture revelation that we get binging Jonah's story. Instead, we live in the moment by moment. And you know what? God knows this also. So our generous and tenacious God gave us Jonah's story so that you and I might see ourselves in Jonah this story exists in God's holy word so that all who read it might recognize any likenesses of ourself with Jonah any similarities of our instincts and reactions as that of Jonah and if we do you and I have the chance to succeed where Jonah failed. We can surrender when Jonah rebelled. We have that chance because a gracious God gave us this story. Not only do we view Jonah living his story, but we get to witness God's living in Jonah's story. In the moment, Jonah may not have realized what the events in his life were doing. In the moment, Jonah may not have realized things were God arranged, but looking back, we see what was really happening. This afternoon, perhaps there are some here that aren't fully realizing how events in our lives today could be God related perhaps in this audience today there are those who could not or have not fully embraced that things that are happening good, bad, perhaps in nature perhaps in family, perhaps in life we can't recognize them that maybe they are part of God's arrangement but today, thanks to Jonah and in the sound of this word of God, perhaps we can glimpse, God is reaching toward us. Maybe we can see life's events and realize that's the voice of God calling to me. That is God attempting to get my attention. As God knew Jonah, He also knows me and you. And God keeps trying to reach us anyway. In Jonah's story, God's perpetual pursuit is on full display. When God is running toward humanity, he is the ultimate endurance athlete. Nobody is more persistent. Than God. No one is more committed to task than God. <laughs> no one endures denial and betrayal and ignori- ignoring, ignoring, more than God. He puts up with so much from so many. So often. Because in the end, he will not quit on us. You know, the book of Jonah ends. Perhaps in reading it and coming to a close, you felt like me and said, Wait, 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 that's the end? It doesn't seem to be a conclusion. We just read the final verses. It's God talking to Jonah and asking him a question, explaining himself to Jonah, and then the book is over. And so we're left to wonder, what will Jonah do with God's persistent pursuit? How is Jonah going to respond to that? You know, that same question applies to you and to me. What am I going to do with God's persistent pursuit of me? Each of us needs to answer the question, how am I going to end my story as the Lord relentlessly reaches into my life? Each of us needs to reply and respond and acknowledge how is God's enduring grace going to play out in me. I suggest today there's only one way for that to play out rightly and peacefully and promisingly. That we pray like Jonah prayed when he finally got his eyes awakened my salvation comes from the Lord alone. My salvation comes from the Lord alone. Would you stand with me today in this auditorium? Front to back and side to side, regardless of your experience and your uh, uh, response time, your Walking and following your knowledge of God. Can I invite everyone right now to talk to the Lord for a few moments and acknowledge my salvation comes from the Lord alone. If it helps you, bow your heads. If it helps you, raise your hands. If it helps you, use your voice and call out. But Lord, I recognize today that my salvation comes from you alone. (coughs) I see, O God, you relentlessly come after me. I see, O Lord, that through various means and various ways, Lord. You even change up your tactics, Lord. You even sometimes approach me in a very uh, harsh way, it would seem, through a heat wave or a violent storm. But at other times, you approach me and and you ask simple questions and you try to reason with me. Other times, Lord, I see where you have explained to me some things that I didn't deserve explained to Lord, it's my desire that my life, my response is positive toward your pursuit. Thank you, Lord, for not giving up on me. Thank you, Lord, for not quitting on me. Thank you, Lord, for not walking away on me when I turned my back on you. Thank you, Lord, for not returning judgment when I was judging you. Thank you, Lord, for not returning anger when I was angry at you. Thank you, Lord, for not berating and belittling me when I was shouting back things at you. Thank you, Lord, for pursuing me coming after me. Oh, Lord, I know my salvation is only in you, Lord. No one else. I'll not solve life myself. I won't wash away my faults on my own. I know that salvation is only in you. You've been listening to the Living Faith Everett podcast series. Tune in next week for the next part of this series, or join us online at livingfaithministries.church. you give me peace